morning, everyone. It's, thank you. it's a pleasure to be here with you um, from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And uh, I have to say, it's very thrilling to look out the church doors and see Central Park right there. <laughs> Just beautiful. Um, yeah, so I'm really happy to be here with you to talk to you about this book I wrote, My Year of Living Spiritually. Um, in 2017, I decided to devote myself to being more devotional and spent 12 months engaged in 24 different spiritual practices, and I wrote this book about it. And two books were the inspiration for this adventure. One was A.J. Jacobs, The Year of Living Biblically. Has anyone read that? Um, it's a wonderful book. It's very funny, and he attempts to follow all 700 arcane uh, rules in the Old Testament. He ties 10% of his salary, he doesn't shave his beard, he's fruitful and multiplies because he has twins that year. He even carries a portable stool around with him on the New York subway system as a way to follow the biblical edict not to sit in a place where a menstruating woman has sat, which is an actual rule in the Old Testament. I was also inspired by Gretchen Rubin's book, The Happiness Project, during which she uh, spends a year road testing every theory about happiness that she can get her hands on from getting better sleep, to singing in the morning, to reading Aristotle, and cleaning out our closets. For my spiritual year, I engaged in a host of practices that might be described as new age, pagan, mystical, transcendental, even supernatural. So what did I do? Everything from goat yoga to singing in choirs. I went on a pilgrimage to Henry David Thoreau's iconic Walden Pond. I meditated, I tried forest therapy, I went to the Women's uh, March in Washington that January. I created a home altar complete with crystals and essential oils. I gave up wine for the 40 days of my secular Lent. I um, worked with a soul coach to um, create more daily practices that would bring intention to my life. I went to a week-long witch camp. I Marie Kondoed my home, learned to read tarot, embraced solitude by living in a treehouse for a few days. I even tried magic mushrooms for the first time, and I can tell you it was quite the trip. Uh, every day I wrote down things I was thankful for, and I got a tattoo. It was a whirlwind year. So why did I do all this? Well, I have to say I partly have Donald Trump to thank, because as you know, that year, 2017, started with the election of this scary new person in the White House. And like many of you, I despaired about what this meant for the world. And I thought that cultivating a deeper spiritual life might help in facing the coming days with a greater resolve and set, instead of hopeless defeat. But there was another reason I embarked on this journey. I had turned 56 that year and midlife had hit with a wallop. My kids were off to university and I was facing the prospect of the looming empty nest. There were challenges in my 30-year marriage and I was still facing the pangs of alienation from my family of origin due to our religious differences. Years earlier, I had left the fundamentalist Dutch Reformed Church that I was raised in, and it was hard for my family to accept this. For many years, we'd gone without speaking to each other. I longed for a reconciliation, especially with my mother, but our differences seemed to make this impossible. And life was also shifting in other ways. When you get to be midlife or a bit older, you find that you start to attend a lot more funerals and weddings. I was hit with the realization that there were far more days behind me than ahead of me. And I wanted to make those days more meaningful. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives, says the writer Ann Dillard. And like many of you, perhaps, I wondered and worried about how the last third of my life was going to unfold. 
And you know, in midlife, we're told to worry a lot more about our sagging skin than our flagging spirit, right? We spend a lot of time and money and effort on the exterior of our lives, how we dress, what our homes look like, how well our kids are faring, how much money we're making. But how much attention do we really give to our spirit? How much do we nourish that inner sanctuary of our being? I would argue that it's in midlife when we become more reflective, we understand what really matters, we've experienced loss and struggle, and we're closer to the end of our lives. It's a time when we may feel a certain restlessness, thus the midlife crisis, a sense of urgency about tending to our spiritual selves. The theologian Beverly Lanzada says, quote, our contemplative nature lives in protest to the complexities of life while beneath society's competing attractions, the longing for the holy erupts in our soul. The longing for the holy erupts in our soul. And the great poet Mary Oliver wrote that attention is the beginning of devotion. I wanted to stop and really pay attention to my life. So I set out on a sort of eat, pray, love, do-it-yourself experiment, uh, my path to enlightenment, I suppose, but except Unlike Elizabeth Gilbert, I didn't have thousands of dollars to spend and I didn't book a flight to Bali to meditate on a mountaintop. Instead, I experimented with all these spiritual practices, most right in my own backyard. They were doable, affordable, and accessible. And I wrote a book about these experiences. I hope this book would help people like me who were wrestling with the choice to leave the religion of their youth, often the oppressive religion of their youth, and um, the impact this had on their families. In some cases, families were just disappointed at them, and in some cases, they were rejected or shunned or excommunicated, which are the tools that oppressive religions use to um, you know, um, separate you from, from your people. My relationship with my mother and other family members had always been close, but it began to unravel when I, when I left the church I grew up in. I was raised going to church twice every Sunday, praying before every meal, reading the Bible after, attending catechism on Wednesdays, young people's on Fridays. I went to private Christian schools. Church life was the center of our existence, an insular place that protected me from worldly, out, uh, worldly influences, like dancing. <laughs> and I'm one of those people, and there are millions of us, former fundamentalists, who were raised with the notion that we were born wretched sinners, Never quite good enough, just the way we are. I was raised with the idea of the existence of the devil and hell and the Calvinistic um, concept of total depravity, which is actually one of the concepts of Calvinism, that as a consequence of Eve eating the apple in the Garden of Eden, every single person is enslaved to sin. For many of us who grew up in these sort of strict religions, guilt was the unifying theme of our religious life. And I like what the Jewish American comedian Kathy Ladman says, you know, all religions are the same, guilt but with different holidays. When I left the fundamentalist church of my youth, I was threatened by the church with excommunication. And my family, because of how they'd been indoctrinated, believed I was going to hell. When I lost my faith, I also lost my family. After leaving that church, I went on to have a brief flirtation with the Presbyterians, a decade-long love affair with the United Church, and finally settled into a committed relationship with the Unitarians about 20 years ago. But so fearful of what was I of my parents' reaction to me becoming a Unitarian, <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> that I kept it from them. 
uh, for about a year. And actually, it was my then eight-year-old daughter who innocently blurted out the news to my parents by saying, we're Unitarian now. We never talk about Jesus. <laughs> so you can imagine how that went over. Becoming a Unitarian led to a decade-long estrangement from my family. But I did find my spiritual home here among the Unitarians, and I continue to be grateful for this. And I wanted to show in my book that with the right support, it is possible to get out of oppressive religions and find something better. It's often painful because you may lose your connection to the people who you love, but there are also things to gain. The right to create your own belief system, the right to be part of a community that embraces you, doubts and all. Everyone's spiritual journey is unique to them and we should all be free to discover and develop it on our own. There are many like me who have left traditional religion. In fact, about 80 million North Americans consider themselves spiritual but not religious, SBNR for short. Being SBNR is certainly not a new idea. The transcendentalists of the mid-1800s were the first to sort of consider themselves SBNR. Led by the great philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, they believed that spiritual truth is known intuitively rather than learned through institutions. They believe we are born good and not sinful. They believe God was in nature rather than the wooden pew. And instead of relying on biblical authority, they relied on their own inner conscience and judgment. Make your own Bible, Emerson urged. The great spiritual writer Thomas Moore says he thinks the big problem of our time is loss of soul. And I think this is evident in the high rates of depression and anxiety and loneliness that we see today. I think many of us are suffering from a spiritual hunger of the soul, and I know I was looking for ways to satisfy that hunger. As I approached my year of living spiritually, I combined a seeker's enthusiasm with a reporter's skepticism to some of the experiences that I engaged in. And some of the things I did during my year are often described as woo-woo, like using crystals or having your chakras balanced or doing a past life regression session. And I think a lot of people use that term woo-woo or new age in a dismissive way to make fun of the whole notion of being spiritual but not religious. And I think these sorts of practices are often dismissed because it's usually women who engage in them. It's a form of sexism, really. You know, billions of people believe in ideas such as the existence of an unproven God or a holy virgin birth, and that's considered perfectly normal and not at all woo-woo. But as soon as we consider alternative practices like Reiki or crystals or forest therapy or pagans dancing under a full moon, they're dismissed as frivolous. These practices, many of which can be deeply meaningful, are dismissed, I believe, because they're followed predominantly by women, and I wanted to challenge the notion that they are simply woo-woo. One of the most profound experiences I had um, during this year was contemplating death. I, I spent, I wrote a whole chapter on death. It's the October chapter, of course, the month of Halloween. And, um, you know, just really examining um, what it meant. I picked out a coffin. I uh, read the obituaries every day. Even though every single one of us knows we're going to die, we live in a death-defying culture. And I'll read you just a little bit um, from that chapter of my book. The Bible says, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Shakespeare said much the same thing in Macbeth. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. 
The mist vanishes, the shadow fades, and then what? The French writer Michel de Montaigne wrote, to begin depriving death of its greatest advantage over us, let us deprive death of its strangeness. Let us frequent it. So I decide to do that. I decide to visit the country of death, albeit temporarily, to see if I can prepare for my own eventual one-way trip. Maybe staring death in the face will help soften its features. I begin by reading the obituaries every morning, absorbing those that have a bit of feeling to go along with the facts. One of my favorites is the obit of Hicks, Sybil Marie, which includes this line. I finally have the smoking hot body I've always wanted, having been cremated. I download a 99 cent app called We Croak that sends me reminders five times a day that I'm going to die. The app is inspired by a Bhutanese saying that to be a truly happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. The reminders come at random times at any moment of the day, just like death. For a few weeks, I have a writing getaway while house-sitting for friends who own a home on the edge of a large municipal cemetery. On my daily walks, I greet the tombstones like old friends. The graves of women, children, and soldiers all become familiar day after day. I can see the cemetery, too, from almost every window in the house where I'm staying, and late at night, the headlights of passing cars cast a fleeting glow, illuminating the markers that stand forever stoic. Some of them date back more than 150 years. I imagine clusters of mourners sagging in grief over heap piles of fresh dirt, dressed in petticoats and pillbox hats, driven here in carriages and packards, different eras but suffering in the same way, nothing to do but stand and weep. I rarely pass a soul on my walks except an occasional dog walker. I never see anyone at a grave. We forget the dead, we'll be forgotten too. Walking through a graveyard puts everything in perspective. During my year of spiritual exploration, I was inspired by these words from Rabbi Abram Heschel, who said, everything is phenomenal, everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. And although I might not have realized it at the start of my year, that's exactly what I was searching for. Amazement, a rekindled feeling of wonder and a sense of meaning in a world that sometimes seems to have gone rather mad. These days, it's tempting to be cynical rather than spiritual especially when the political leadership of the free world seems intent on destroying the planet, marginalizing the oppressed, and glorifying greed. Maybe one way to fight against the inevitable disillusionment, disappointment, and despair this can cause is to cultivate a more spiritual life, to tend to that inner sanctuary of our being. Maybe this can help us create a deeper reservoir to draw on when our souls feel parched. And maybe this can serve to amplify a more determined outer life so that we can be of better service in the world. So did I end my year as a more spiritual person? Well, I always say you'll have to read the book to find out. But I will tell you this, I changed some things in my life. I created new morning routines that include a gratitude practice every single day. I cultivated kinder self-talk. I spent more time in nature. And I also spent more time working on the relationships in my life. I am more aware of death. I travel more, I read more, and I watch less Netflix. I have a renewed appreciation for life. The year offered answers about how to live more attentively and authentically in the world. It made me consider what it means to be a good daughter, a good wife, a good mother, a good person, 
and it also resulted in significant changes in a couple of major relationships in my life. It meant forgiveness, not just of others, but of myself. I made peace with the past, and I think I changed the course of my future. Sadly, my 32-year marriage came to an end, but we managed to do it amicably. On the happier side of things, I reconciled with my mother, which has been a great gift. We found a way to work things out, which includes not discussing religion, and we are as close as we once were. The writer Polly Barron says, everything that happens to you is your teacher. The secret is to learn to sit at the feet of your own life and be taught by it. In the end, I realized that religion almost wrecked me, but spirituality saved me, and I feel I found my way again. And we can find our way through practice because spiritual practices are just that. Whether we do a gratitude practice every day, whether we come here on a Sunday, whether we walk in nature, there's so many ways to enhance our spirituality and they can be dedicated weekly, monthly, or even annual routines that we devote ourselves to in the hope of having a life with more connection, more meaning, more peace, more contentment. Emily Dickinson said, the soul should always stand ajar ready to welcome the ecstatic experience. I'm glad I pushed open that door and I invite you to walk through it with me because who knows what you might find on the other side. I'm gonna end my, um, my session here today with you um, reading from a chapter, I, I have a whole chapter on singing in my book, The Power of Singing to Enhance Our, our spirituality and one of the things I did I took a singing lesson I sang in community choirs I went to a singing vacation retreat and one of the things I did is I spent an afternoon uh, in a hospital in Toronto with a threshold choir which is a small choir that sings at the bedside of people who are um, terribly ill or, or palliative and I'll read a bit uh, to you from that now I have not been up close with death and suffering very often, and I'm not prepared for what I see in this hospital. Several of the patients in the chronic care section are unconscious, kept alive by machines attached to their windpipes. The first woman in the first room we go into is about my age. Her eyes are closed and her mouth hangs slack. She is missing several teeth, and as we gather around her bed, I can see from the outline of her form under the blanket that she is also missing her legs from the knees down. A car accident, I wonder? Her blue hospital gown is thin and I can see one breast is gone. Breast cancer? So many missing pieces. But the window ledge in her room is full. There are plants in bloom, cards and photos from another life. In one, she looks vibrant and carefree, standing on a tropical beach with who I assume is her grown son and a grandchild. There's a Mother's Day card addressed to a special mom. I naively hope for some slight movement in her face as we sing to her, but it doesn't come. I don't know what's happened to this woman, but I do know she is loved. As we enter the room of a patient who looks to be in her early 40s, her elderly mother is standing next to her bed. Yes, please sing, says the mother, and we launch into a short selection. The mother never stops touching her daughter, patting her shiny black hair, adjusting the cotton padding around her trach tube, lifting her hand to see if her daughter's already perfectly manicured fingernails need further trimming. When we finish our last song, the mother claps her hands and looks brightly over at her daughter, but there is no response. Afterward, I'll learn that the daughter has been in hospital for seven years, non-responsive for the last few. At first, I wonder why the parents have kept her artificially alive, but then I imagine that this is one of my daughters, 
in a silent coma for years, her heart still beating, fingernails still growing, still needing her mother, her mother still needing her. On our way out, as we finish our singing, we pass a large room with a half a dozen elderly women in it. Some are in hospital beds and some are bent over in wheelchairs. A young male orderly at one end of the room is holding an iPhone that's playing a tinny version of John Lennon's Imagine. He's singing to the women, a few of whom follow along in their quavery voices. And when the orderly sees us, he invites us to sing for the group. We oblige, and some, parent, some patients from the hallway also maneuver into the room. Soon there are patients all around us. Some clap their hands, some know all the lyrics, a few continue sleeping. One woman in a wheelchair raises her bent head every once in a while, looks at us, and simply moans. Some of these women are barefoot. Some have brightly painted toenails, which I take as a hopeful sign. Their legs are thin and fragile, like the limbs of schoolgirls dangling from monkey bars. More women in wheelchairs and men too are congregating in the hallway, jockeying like bumper cars, following the call of our voices. We've practically got a concert going on now. A middle-aged woman comes into the room, goes over to the moaning woman in the wheelchair and strokes her thin gray hair, whispering gently into her ear, which momentarily quiets her. There is certainly despair here among those who are confused and feeble and dying, but there is love too. Music soothes us at the beginning of life and comforts us at the end. It achieves the miraculous task of simultaneously expressing our suffering and offering solace. Our little choir moves into the hallway because the room is overcrowded. And as we line up against the wall, the moaning woman gestures to her daughter to move her wheelchair closer to us. As we sing, she begins to mouth the words slowly. In her confused and innocent face, I can imagine the young girl she once was and also the old woman I'll become if I'm lucky enough to live another 30 years. All these mothers and daughters administering so tenderly to each other makes me think of my own mother and what it will be like for her at the end, whether she'll want me to stroke her hair. I think of my daughters and how I hope they'll outlive me by decades, how I hope I can hold their hands when my time comes, how I hope there'll be music to mark my ending, Maybe even this little light of mine, the song my mother once sang to me as a child. That would be a comfort, I believe, as my particular candle goes from a flame to a flicker and then is extinguished. If we're lucky, our lives begin with someone singing to us and end that way too. Hi, and welcome to Getting the Message, where we dive a little bit deeper into our service themes. This week, we were really excited to have a special guest, Anne Bookma, who both is a author, but as well as speaks about these topics and was able to come and join our congregation this weekend to talk a little bit about her journey with spiritual practices. Anne, would you like to tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired this journey? Thank you so much, Ember. Uh, so my book is called, can you see it? <laughs> my Year of Living Spiritually, One Woman's Secular Quest for More Soulful Life. And it was um, a pleasure to, to be in New York. I'm from Ontario, Canada, and uh, I'm here for a couple of weeks. And I wrote to the church and they um, agreed to have me as a speaker. So I'm really happy to be here with you all. Um, I wrote my book in 2017 and it was published in 2019 by a publisher in Canada. It was an incredible experience to um, write about a year I spent engaged in 24 different spiritual practices 
I, I did everything from, um, you know, going on a pilgrimage to Walden Pond, to experimenting with magic mushrooms, to doing a past life regression session, to simplifying my home. I did a whole bunch of things. And I also wrote about um, the estrangement I had due to religious differences with my family of origin. I was raised Dutch Reform um, and became a Unitarian about 15 years ago. And that did not go over well with my family, unfortunately. And it was a long, a decade long period of estrangement. So I wrote about the difficulty of that journey as well. Um, I'm curious, you know, with with you talking about, um, I, I have a little bit of experience with uh, the the Dutch Reformed world, having spent some time in West Michigan, uh, so that is something that um, resonates with me there. Um, I, I'm curious, how did your family respond to you writing this? Have, has it been a conversation you've had with them? Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church, you know, I went to private Christian school, I was really separated from the, the main culture, catechism and young peoples and church twice on Sunday and reading the Bible and praying after every meal. And when I got older and went to journalism school, you know, the scales kind of fell from my eyes and I really started to develop my own belief system and I, I didn't believe in you know, the total depravity of man, which is one of the concepts of Calvinism or that we're born sinful and terrible and all that. And I started to pull away from the church. And um, it was a very uneasy relationship with my parents for years, although we were still connected. But it wasn't until I became a Unitarian that they really um, had great difficulty with that. They really felt I was in some kind of cult and didn't understand it and I couldn't explain it to them and um, they just felt it was too liberal and we had a falling out and we went um, we had a decade-long estrangement where I didn't see my siblings or my parents it was very very painful and uh, my stepfather died uh, just as I completed the book and I um, I did go to his funeral and I reconnected with my mother and I did give her the manuscript to read and um, she's never really said whether she likes it or not but we slowly reconciled and we're actually very close right now. And we just stopped discussing religion basically, uh, which is all I'd asked for. And um, thankfully, thankfully I am very close with her once again, and I'm so thankful for that. But I know how difficult the journey can be for people with religious trauma syndrome, where they're rejected from their families. Often if they're gay, this happens, or if they become an atheist or whatever. In my case, it was becoming a Unitarian, and uh, it is very, very painful to be estranged from the people who, you know, are your family. But this happens a lot, and um, I, I decided I do write about that in my book. Right. I, I have found um, that as somebody with um, not, I, I spent some time in the Dutch Reformed world, but uh, my background was the very fundamentalist uh, evangelical um but I found that, yeah, Unitarian Universalism has been a, a very nice space to kind of heal and process um, through some of that and find religion in a different sense. Yeah, I have to say becoming Unitarian really healed me um, because I was used to going to church. I liked going to services. I liked the music. I like hearing a message. I like being seen and known in community. And it was, I, you know, I experimented with the Presbyterians and the United Church, and I was still expected to by a lot of dogma that I just didn't believe. And yet, when I came to Unitarian Church, I got all the benefits of, of being part of a religious spiritual community without having to carry the heavy weight of dogma. And it was just such a gift. And uh, my children are Unitarian, they identify that way. 
I go to a Unitarian campground, you know, I'm on, I've been on, I'm on the board of the Unitarian church. It's just been a wonderful place to meet. And I do have quite a few pages in my book, about five pages explaining Unitarianism, which was my attempt at promoting our wonderful religion in the wider world. Um, with the wider world, has, so you talked a little bit about your family's, um, your the situation with your family and how your um, relationship has evolved because of um, this this book. What has been the general public's reaction to, like, have you gotten a lot of comments from people? Have you gotten positive feedback, negative feedback, hate? Actually, no hate. No hate whatsoever. Um, my book sold about 4,000 copies in Canada. It is available on Amazon, or I encourage you to find it in an independent bookstore if you can. I'm not actually a huge fan of Amazon, but um, there are about 100 reviews of my book on there if people want to learn more about it or go to my website and bookma.com you can learn lots about me there um the reaction you know i got so many letters from people who had left various religions um mormons jehovah's witnesses baptists um you know those are some of the harsher religions that really shun you excommunicate you banish you all those hard things when you don't buy the party line and um, I also included a list of resources at the back of my book for people who have left uh, these religions um, because it is extremely painful. Usually you have no problem leaving the religion, but you have a problem with your family. And we all wanna be loved by our families. Unfortunately, our families cannot always accept us. And we have a right to our own spiritual beliefs, um, you know, and our families have to accept that unless they're a danger to somebody. So I got a lot of letters and a lot of feedback from people who found my book a comfort. And uh, that was so incredibly gratifying because I know the pain that comes from losing your family. And, you know, there is such a thing as religious trauma syndrome. Dr. Marlene Winnell in San Francisco, anyone who's struggling with this right now, I encourage you to go to her website. She's a specialist in helping people with religious trauma who have left religions and are suffering because of estrangement from their families. So yeah, it was really gratifying to know that my story resonated with people in some way and um, it really meant a lot. Right, powerful to know that the, the journey can be resonating and powerful for other people to interact with. Yeah, you know, as a writer, you, you toil alone, right? You know, I was writing this, it took me nine months to write the book and I, you know, so much self-doubt. Who's going to care about my little story? And I, I teach memoir, so I always say this to people. Self-doubt, well, and Sylvia Plath said self-doubt is the is the enemy of creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, so often we doubt that our story is powerful and important. And so we need to, you know, carry through and try to do it. And I've been a writer my whole life, so I knew I could do it. I just wondered, would it be of interest to people? But, you know, a lot of people have been interested in some of the spiritual adventures I went on like I went to a witch camp and like I say I did magic mushrooms and I tried all kinds of things and people have been quite quite curious about that so that's been wonderful as well have you stuck with any of the practices or you know was there any that stood out as particularly enlightening to you well I did I did 24 different spiritual practices and you know I wrote about each of them in depth and you know some of these things are considered woo-woo you know and I always say um I think it's because a lot of women tend to follow, you know, whether it's paganism or Reiki or healing modalities that are easily dismissed, often because, you know, women have followed them, whereas 
ideas like the virgin birth or burning hell, you know, I would say some of those ideas are woo-woo, and yet they're completely accepted by many people in our society. Um, the one overriding practice that's still very meaningful to me and very helpful is a practice of gratitude. And um, you just, you know, so often we can focus on what's not working well in our lives and and get focused on that. And there's so much depression and anxiety in our culture. But and not to say that being grateful is going to solve everything, but it can make life better when we do look at the things that are working and especially writing them down. I have an app on my phone where I write things down every day or taking a few minutes in the morning to really be aware of the things that are working in our lives. I found that to be a very powerful spiritual practice. Oh, definitely. Uh, multiple things there resonated with me, both the discussion of the 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 woo-woo, because I have moved from being someone who grew up with the with the tulip of of you know total depravity and all of the um the you know very strict like uh, understandings of theology and to move into this more out there kind of spirituality is it's it's a bit of a journey sometimes um, yeah for people who don't know what tulip stands for do you know offhand what i mean that is a that is a calvinistic yeah total depravity unconditional election limited atonement Irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. <laughs> you are good. You were indoctrinated well. <laughs> it was. That's that reformed Bible college degree for me. Um, Is it, oh, you went to Calvin College? I went to uh, Kuiper, so it's even more. Wow. wow. I went to Calvin for I went to Calvin Seminary for my uh, graduate school. Wow. What was that like for you? It it was an experience. <laughs> yeah. You know, I um I talk about uh the transcendentalists in my book. I went to um to Massachusetts, Concord, Massachusetts, where the transcendentalists, you know, all lived together. Uh Ralph Waldo Emerson and um, you know, the Alcott family, Louisa May Alcott and Henry David Thoreau. It's an amazing place to visit. And um, you know, the transcendentalists were sort of the spiritual but not religious folks of their time. And, um, you know, I think so much of what they had to say is so interesting. Emerson said, make your own Bible. You know, they believe that we're born good and not evil, that the church is often in nature, not in the man-made pew. And uh, I think um, so much of what they have to say, had to say, is still very, very relevant for us today. Oh, I think that it's, yeah, make, make, make your own Bible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, my my brain's going a million different places now, and I really appreciated this chance to sit down and talk with you. Thank you so much, Ember. It was lovely to be with you today. And thanks for also like coming to Fourth U this weekend and uh, being with us. I look forward to it. And thanks as always to all of our listeners. Mm -hmm.